Well, good morning, everyone. Here we are at the last Sunday of the church year. Next Sunday is the first of Advent, and in the Christian liturgical tradition, Advent marks the beginning of a new calendar year. Well, the year 2020 will not soon be forgotten. When I was younger, it sounded like a futuristic time of apocalyptic proportions. And it's sort of turning out that way. If you remember back to Advent last year, um, we were hearing on the news about the impeachment of the U.S. president. And then, uh, I think early in the new year, his acquittal by the Senate. There was also a small side story about a strange and unknown virus in Wuhan, China. Uh, we were also hearing lots and seeing lots about massive street protests in Hong Kong. Um, and now this past week, we just heard that the remaining pro-democracy legislators there have all resigned. The year also began with unprecedented wildfires in Australia, um, killing upwards of 500 million animals. Then in the middle of March, this strange virus became a global pandemic and everything began to shut down. Then in the midst of the shutdown in May 25th, George Floyd, an African-American, was brutally murdered by a police officer in Minneapolis, uh, which unleashed, unleashed massive protests and a new sort of... Uh, awareness and um, discontent with racial injustice, police brutality. Then some of us had a brief summer break. Fall came and we're into the second wave of COVID um, and feeling the effects of now being confined inside. There's been some good news about vaccines, but we hear that they're going to be months away yet. Um, and we're moving currently toward the red zone. Oh, no, yes, uh, this fall, there was a U.S. election. Um, we made it through the interminable process. Uh, Donald Trump lost, and he's currently refusing to uh, face reality and concede. And so it remains to be seen how this transition of power will play out. So it's been quite a year. Uh, New for us as well, we've been meeting online since March. So it's certainly one for the history books. On this, the last Sunday of the liturgical year, it's good to look back, to take a deep sigh perhaps, and to let it go. <sighs> you know, it's true that we store up a lot of stress in our bodies. And so it's actually good to move our bodies and to exhale and to, to let that stress go. Um, I know that animals do this. I, I saw it on a nature show once that after they've had a stressful encounter, they, they automatically shake and, and let it go and come back to equilibrium. So I thought I'd invite us now, if you're so inclined, to stand, um, take an exhale, shake and let it go. Uh, we can shake off 2020. Don't worry, no, no one's going to see you except 
I guess your housemates. Okay. Oh, that felt good. Well, it's been our tradition now at Rockway for quite some time to mark the last Sunday of the church calendar year as Eternity Sunday. In addition to remembering events of the past year, we take time to remember and to honor those who've died. We, we seek to step back and take a reflective perspective on life, on death, and on the Christian promise of resurrection and eternal life. Promise of eternal life. Perhaps it feels like a bit of a stretch for how, how can we possibly know? I often find myself uh, these days scanning the obituaries and the record in the morning when I look at the paper. And this past week there was one in which the writers said they were sure that Dawn is now out on the golf course, you know, enjoying a round and a drink at the clubhouse just like in old times. And so is this eternal life? Well, I can't imagine it's like this. Do you think? Um, we tend to imagine it as a continuation of this life, <clears throat> but it can't really be like that. I don't think, at least. Um, they were talking about these sorts of things. Human beings have been talking about it forever. But back in Corinth, um, in the, the small Christian community, um, we heard a passage from Paul's letter this morning. They were talking about these things, and Paul responds with very strong language. Someone asks him, he says, so what is this about the resurrection? Like, how actually are they raised, and with what kind of body do they come? And Paul kind of loses his cool. He says, you fool! And I don't really know why he needs to be so testy about it. Um, it is a mysterious topic, and it does seem like a reasonable question. Who knows? I don't know. Maybe he's been over it numerous times, and um, the person was not taking notes, and so they're just asking the same old question. I don't know. Um, but Paul is saying quite emphatically that this body that we have will go... And that the new body to come, the resurrection body, the spiritual body, will not be anything like it. It won't be out playing golf. The body we have on earth will die and will go back to dust. It goes away and it won't be restored or resuscitated. And Paul says that it's part of the process that God has ordained, it has to go away um, before a new reality can come, before a new life and body can become possible. The earthly body, he says, is just like a bear and a tiny seed, and a very new and different looking thing will come from it. Sort of like if you take a seed, you can't imagine what the plant's going to look like. The seed does not like, look like the watermelon that it grows into or the marigold, or the tomato plant. Something very different emerges from it. So I find this kind of um, 
this kind of thing helpful because it reminds us, okay, we're talking about something else. We're talking about a different dimension, not just the continuation of what we know. And it reminds me of a passage I read recently from Thomas Merton. The passage was included in a book by Cynthia Bourgeau, and she had found it on a transcript of some audio tapes. Merton had given this talk to some novices shortly before he died. This is what he said. I want to quote it. He says, God is near to us at the point that is just before the final destruction. Take away everything else down to that point of final destruction. And the last little bit that's left before destruction, a little kernel of gold, which is the essence of you. And there is God protecting it. And this is something terrific. It sort of sounds like the um, bare and tiny seed that Paul is talking about. Merton goes on, the real freedom is the freedom to be able to come and go from that center and to be able to do without anything that is not immediately connected to that center. Because when we die, everything is destroyed except this one thing, which is our reality and which is the reality that God preserves forever. He will not permit its final destruction. And the thing is, we know this. This is built right into that particular little grain of gold, the spark of the soul, or, or whatever it is. It knows this. And the freedom that matters is the capacity to be in contact with that center. For it's from that center that everything else comes. And we don't normally get into that center unless we're brought to the edge of what looks like destruction. In other words, we have to be facing the possibility of the destruction of everything else to know that this will not be destroyed. I find that a very bracing passage. He's saying here that there's a part of us He's, he has a hard time defining what it actually is. He said, whatever it is. But there's a part of us, a, a kernel, a spark of soul, of divinity, um, that's indestructible. It's a thing that existed before we were born and will exist after we die. Uh, the psalmist perhaps is alluding to the same thing in the words we heard this morning. The psalmist says, you know, before I was born, you saw me. Um, I was being made in secret. My frame was not hidden from you. Your eyes beheld my unformed substance. And Merton says that the freedom that matters most, and he's talking about, you know, here on this life, in this, in this body, the freedom that matters the most is to be in contact with this center and to move and to operate and to make decisions out of this center. Because it's the only thing to be, that, that's ultimately going to endure. Everything else will pass away. And I suppose he'd say that many of us make the mistake of, of trying to cling on too much or hold on too much to peripheral things, to things that are not going to last. For sure it's, I mean, I'm, I'm what I'm thinking of... Um, Things that will not last. Well, um, our money 
or our own abilities, our own skills. Um, tennis, golf, um, these things are great. And, you know, they're, they're gifts that are given. But if we build our whole identity and our legacy around them, we're making a big mistake in the spiritual sense because they're passing away. And according to Merton, we're often not able to get in touch with this tiny center um, until we've been brought to the edge of destruction, until we faced an existential crisis. And um, you hear people talking about this, the kind of transformation that happens when they face their own mortality through um, a diagnosis or through a brush with death. But when life goes on smoothly and comfortably, it's easy to get kind of lulled into the illusion, you know, that, that all these things that we have will last, um, or that all this is all that there really is. The call of Christ and the call of the saints through the ages is to get in touch with a deeper reality before it's too late, before we reach the end of our earthly life before the point of our physical destruction. They say if we can die in a spiritual sense, let go before we have to let go of our bodies, um, we can be born anew into a new awareness, a new quality of life, call it eternal life and the freedom that that entails, we can actually enter the eternal realms already. And I think this, in, lar in a large way, is what the meaning of Jesus' death is about. I mean, um, Jesus' death is the doorway. Uh, Jesus' death is the path that illuminates the larger life. There's salvation for us in Jesus' death. And I know um, some people react, react to this kind of language, you know, like, well, how can someone's death be salvific for us? Um, how could God require a death for our salvation? Isn't that barbaric on God's part? And I suppose, depending how you frame it, it could be. It could be barbaric if, if it's a payment that has to be made to satisfy an angry God or something like that. But I don't understand it that way. Um, I don't think of, of Jesus' death as the payment. I think of Jesus' death, it just was the way. Um, the way for him and the way for us. And in a way, it's the, it's the price we pay for being alive on this, on this earth. We all have to die. And Jesus' death shows us that we ultimately don't have to fear it, even the worst sort of death. We can face it, and when the time comes, we can even open ourselves to it and welcome it. Because it's a doorway. Our physical death is not the end. And so blessed are those who are able to die even before they die in 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 body. Blessed are those who are able to find in this life the door to a new life, to a new freedom. 
Blessed are those who come to the awareness that I don't have to keep working and working and working to be recognized. I don't have to keep storing up every bit of money that I can. I don't have to be worried and concerned about what people are thinking about me. I don't have to have my name on that plaque. Jesus promises us that life on earth is nested within a larger life and that we have the opportunity to connect with it and to taste it even now. So may we be blessed in this endeavor. Amen.